belief for today as we continue to go through this series on basic Christian beliefs and as we now move from thinking about Jesus as we've been doing, his life, his death, the grace that that brought to us through his death, we now turn to a focus over the next three weeks on the Holy Spirit. And we begin with the Holy Spirit's ministry in giving us the Bible. Um, So if you look at the inside back page of your bulletin, Uh, This morning's Christian belief, we believe the Bible is God's word and has decisive authority over what we believe and how we live. And the memory verse there, if you'd say it with me, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then you see again there, and we'll be doing this for the rest of the summer since the kids are learning the same thing in their class. Um, it's an opportunity for families to go home and um, talk about these things. And as parents, hopefully you learn something here that you could help to equip your kids and follow up with them about Sunday school. So there's some questions there that you could use to engage them in conversation. If you're not part of a family, you could meditate on these questions. You could use them uh, with somebody else as discussion questions, so they're there for for you to use. So we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 this morning. That's on page 843, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. And again, we'll refer to that that scripture as we go along this morning. I'm not going to focus the whole time on it. We'll be covering some, some other scriptures as well as we think about the Bible. So what is the Bible? anyway? And, and how did we get it? And can we really trust it? Movies like The Da Vinci Code have suggested a few years ago that the answers to these questions are a lot more complicated than, than faithful Christians like to think. After all, there are other Gospels which didn't make it into our scripture, like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. What about them? What about the other versions of Christianity which were stamped out and repressed by the early church, critics like to say. Is Christianity as we presently know it the the true version, or is it just the most powerful version, the winner of the religious wars of long ago? And is the Bible just the winner's book? Is it just a document that was selected and compiled by the victors to uphold their positions and their views? And... How relevant is the Bible today? I mean, times have changed in 2,000 years. And we know so much more now through scientific discovery and careful academic inquiry. We've largely thrown off prejudice and superstition and intolerance. And and modern societies now have, have very different challenges and opportunities than the primitive cultures of the past. So what is the Bible? And how does it relate to today's world? Even among Christians, there's various answers. On the one hand, there are, I'm I'm caricaturing now, you know, the Bible-thumping preachers who who urge us to take every word of the Bible strictly, literally for ourselves today. And then on the other hand, there are the the smooth, sophisticated Christian intellectuals who grant that the Bible is an inspired book, but they caution that we have to carefully tease out God's inspired message from parts of Scripture which are just the inventions of fallible human beings. Which view are you closer to? How seriously do you take the Bible? Well, with these 
matters in mind, I'd like to ask and then to answer three questions about the Bible this morning. First, what is it? Second, how did we get it? And then third, can we trust it? Okay, so let's start with what is the Bible? Well, the Bible, if you just breeze through it, is a collection, largely a collection of letters and stories and poems. In other words, it's a very literary book. It's it's an artsy book. And above all, the Bible is a story, not just a treasury or or depository of of little spiritual nuggets, but, but rather it's a coherent story. It's a story which begins before the world began and a story which ends when the world finally passes away and gives way to a new world. It's a big story, or or as we call it today, it's a meta-narrative. A big story that explains and gives meaning to the world we live in. Theologian N.T. Wright says that a a meta-narrative answers five big questions. Who are we? Where are we? What's wrong? What's the solution? And what time is it? Or how long have we got? And the Bible does all of that. You know, people have been increasingly aware today that that we as humans are storied creatures. We love a good story, don't we? I mean, isn't it hard not to listen to a good story? We're we're wired for stories. And and we tend to get our sense of, of who we are and what life is about and whether we should be hopeful or pessimistic about the future based on the big story that we believe. And there are um, various competing big stories, meta-narratives out there. There's the Marxist story. That one's fallen on hard times lately. There's the Darwinist story, still alive and well. The story of American capitalism the story of scientific progress. Then there are fictitious meta-narratives which shape us nonetheless, like the Star Wars story and the Star Trek story, the Lord of the Rings story. But even with with non-fiction meta-narratives, historians point out that no story is completely objective. Every story is told from some point of view. So, for example, In the North, we talk about the Civil War, but you go to the Deep South and they tell the story of the War of Northern Aggression. So stories come with points of view. And and so critics like to say to Christians that about the Bible that, that your story isn't objective either. It's biased. It's reflecting a point of view. And you know what? We can agree with them. It would be foolish to claim that the Bible is completely objective, that it doesn't represent a point of view. It is biased, and guess whose point of view it represents? God's point of view. It claims to be God's perspective on things, God's take on world history. Yeah, there's other opinions, there's other takes, there's other slants on world history. We're aware of them all the time, but the Bible claims to be God's point of view on these things. So Christians speak of the Bible as God's revelation. Revelation is based on the idea that that God is up there in heaven and and we're down here. And and so if God didn't speak to us, if God didn't give us his point of view, if he didn't make himself known, then then we would know nothing about him and, and nothing about his perspective on things. 
But theologians say God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in two ways. First, through general revelation, through this world, through the clouds and the trees and the stars, as Psalm 19 puts it, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Through other people too, through our consciences, through our inner sense of right and wrong, we can know some things of God without the Bible because, because God has revealed something about himself in these ways. But, but at best, through this general revelation, we get only a fuzzy picture of God. We, we can know that he's there. We can know that he's big and, and powerful. But, but to have a clear picture of who God is, we need more than that. We need, second, we need special revelation. And theologians continue throughout history, God has given his people special revelations. God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God warned Noah about the flood. God uh, appeared to Abraham and gave him promises. God called Moses to set his people free. He, he brought his people out of Egypt. He gave them his law. He, he came down among them to be with them, to protect and provide for them. Then God um, saved them again and again through judges and through kings. And, and God spoke to his people through prophets. All special revelations. And, and then um, came the greatest special revelation of all. When God himself came down and walked among us and lived with us and, and taught us and died for us and rose again in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and all of these revelations must have been wonderful, right? To, to be there, to have experienced them. But, but none of us got to experience them. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rats. So, so what did God do for us? Well, he gave us a new special revelation. He gave us a revelation about the revelations. He gave us the Bible, his authorized account, the authorized story of these past revelations. God hasn't given us a record of everything that he ever did, of, of every way that he ever revealed himself, but rather he's given us the highlights, a hand-picked bunch which he wanted us to know. And again, he didn't just give us the objective facts of what happened, but, but he, he gave us his own point of view on what happened and on what we're supposed to get from it. And so the Bible itself is then God's revelation of himself to us. Why? Because he loves us and he wants us to know him. You know, it's fashionable to say that there are many ways to God. Like God is at the top of a mountain and there, there are a lot of different roads up the mountain. There's Christianity, there's Buddhism, there's New Age, there's Islam, etc. And they're all different ways to get to God. The problem with this view, though, is that it supposes that we don't need, or it assumes that we don't need revelation. It assumes that, that God is close enough and accessible enough that, that we can all just figure him out for ourselves and we go about it different ways, but we all get to the same place. But what if God is so beyond us? What if, what if God is so beyond, so much greater than what our puny little minds can fathom? What, what if God is so high up, so great, so 
beyond us that, that we never by ourselves could, could find our way all the way to the top of the mountain by ourselves. Then we would need revelation. We, we would need God out of his love and concern to reach us to make a road down the mountain. And that's exactly what the Bible claims to be. So what is the Bible? Well, as, as Christians, we believe that, that it's a big story, that it's God's story, and that it's God's revelation of himself to us, that it's God's retelling of the history of the world from God's point of view, pointing out a number of ways that God has gotten involved, has revealed himself to humankind in the past, and it's all preserved for us in, in a book for our benefit too, so that we can know God and so that we can know his love as well as the people we read about who got to experience these things firsthand. So if that's what the Bible is, then, then the second question is, how did we get the Bible? It didn't just drop out of heaven. It, God didn't FedEx it to the Pope or something. It, you know, I, th I think sometimes as, as Christians, that's sort of how we assume we got the Bible. Like, like the King James Bible just fell out of heaven or... Um, or uh, that like this painting, some holy man just sat there and, and dictated the whole thing as an angel read it off to him. But, uh, and that's, you know, that's more or less the, the view that, that the Muslims have about the Quran, that it was dictated, I think, by the, the Archangel Gabriel to, um, to Muhammad. But, but that's not what Christian, Christians actually believe about how we got the Bible. No, Christians recognize that the Bible was written in, in human languages, in, in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic. That it was written by a variety of people, all very different from each other, by, by dozens of people writing in, in different places at, at different times over hundreds of different years. And, and the Bible is, is a mishmash of materials. It, it contains old genealogies and, and court records and old treaty documents and law codes. It contains songs and, and sermons and letters and, and lots of stories which were handed down verbally for decades or for centuries before they ever got written down. And each of these documents and each of these oral traditions originally communicated in a certain language to a certain culture. And, and if you don't know something about that language in that culture, you can easily misunderstand what's being communicated. So, for example, when Peter wrote in 2 Peter that at the end of history, the elements will be melted by fire, you'd be wrong to assume that Peter is talking about the elements on the periodic table. Because Peter didn't know about the periodic table. He didn't know about those elements. The elements that Peter knew about and that his readers knew about at that time were, what were they? Earth, fire, wind, and water, right? The ancient Greek four elements. And so the amazing thing about the Bible is that the truth it contains doesn't come to us just floating in thin air, heavenly, pure, and, and unadulterated. No, it, it comes incarnate. It comes enculturated. It comes embedded and, and contextualized in the cultures of the people at the times that they were writing. Because remember, it was God's revelation to them before it was God's revelation to us. And so if we're going to understand the Bible, then we're going to have to take time to learn about the cultures in which God's revelation first came and then to reapply that word to our culture today. Because the Bible is, is communication. 
And, and communication isn't easy. It's hard work, right? <laughs> Especially cross-cultural communication. And there's, you know, a man and a woman. That's cross-cultural communication. But that's not what I'm talking about. Cross-cultural communication. We've got to listen carefully. Otherwise, we're prone to misunderstand what God is trying to say to us. That's why the experience that has best helped me in learning how to understand the Bible were the three years that I spent living in a very different culture in, in the country of Hungary. Now, where does that leave the, those of us who don't know Greek and Hebrew and, and who don't know a lot about ancient cultures? Well, the 17th century German pietists had a great, very helpful insight here. They recognized that, that because the Bible was written in foreign languages and, and to foreign cultures that, that understanding some of it required men and women with advanced training and learning in these things. And yet on the other hand, they also recognized that the Bible is the book of the people, that, that anyone can read and can understand its basic message. And so they encouraged everyone, even, even the simplest German farmer in the, this uh, 17th century, to read and to digest the Bible for its basic and, and central message. But when it came to more complicated matters, they, they valued the training and the expertise of, of those skilled in theology and interpretation and languages and ancient cultures. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It's a common sense approach. That's what the Bible is. And that's a great way to approach it. Okay, so question. If, if the Bible is such a human document, then how can Christians claim that it's also God's revelation? Answer, inspiration. Inspiration. The Bible itself claims to be God's inspired, or it claims rather that God inspired the human writers of the Bible to write what they wrote. And we'll talk about some verses that show this later, and, and we'll talk about whether it's a valid claim. But, but for now, let's think about this word inspiration, because inspiration is a slippery word. I mean, uh, you could say that Shakespeare was inspired, right, when he wrote many of his sonnets. Um, and so Christians argue about just how inspired the Bible is. On, on the one hand of the spectrum are those who say the Bible's not much more inspired than Shakespeare is. But on the other hand are those who believe in the verbal and the plenary inspiration of Scripture. By verbal, they mean that, that every word of the Bible is, is inspired, that, that God oversaw the word choice of the human author so that not a single word is there by accident. And by plenary, they mean that the Bible is fully inspired, that, that every part of the Bible says just what God would have it to say. And those who hold this view point out that, that that seems to be how Jesus evidently viewed the Old Testament scriptures. When, when Jesus argued with his opponents and, and when he quoted a scripture, his argument often hung on a single word or verb tense of the scripture he was using. So, for example, when, when Jesus is debating with his opponents in Matthew 24, 34 to 35, he appeals to Psalm 110 and he says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls his own son Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, if you take some time and you read that argument carefully and, and you read the, the argument he's having there with his opponents, you'll see that what Jesus says there rests on the juxtaposition of two words, my and Lord. 
Jesus evidently took every word of scripture to be God's inspired revelation, right down to, to a given word, a given verb tense, a given combination of two words. And isn't it just amazing to think that God would stoop to use frail and fallible people, products of their own imperfect cultures, to speak his own timeless words to accurately reveal himself to all of us. Well, the next question then is, how did all these various letters and stories and poems, etc., get collected into one book, the book that we have today? Well, this was a long process, and the key word to describe this is the word canon, canon. A canon is a yardstick, it's, it's a measure. It's, in the case of the Bible, it's the claim that this collection of writings, and not any other, is the yardstick against which we measure all other writings and thoughts and claims. And I don't have time this morning to go into how the Old Testament canon came together, but it's safe to say that by the time of Jesus, it, the Old Testament was pretty much in its present form in the Hebrew Bible. And, and that Jesus and his apostles recognized it as scripture, as God's inspired revelation, as canon. And so then we move to the New Testament canon. And the New Testament took several hundred more years to come together. Now, all of the New Testament books were written within 100 years of Jesus' life. And they were quickly recognized and used by various churches as inspired scripture. But, but when Paul writes one letter to the region of Galatia, and he writes another to the city of Philippi, and, and when, when John writes a gospel for Ephesus, and Mark writes another gospel for the city of Rome, and, and other churches are being planted in, in Asia Minor, and in Europe, and in Africa, and there, there's no internet, and there's no photocopiers, there's no FedEx, you can imagine that it would take a long time for, for all of these churches everywhere to first of all get a hold of and then to agree on one set of documents as its canon. But by the fourth century, there were various heresies circulating in the churches. There were various writings stating contradictory things. And the church started to recognize the need to agree on one canon. And so what did they do? Well, well, they got their leaders together from all these different churches all over the known world at the time, and, and they prayed, and, and these leaders asked three questions. They asked, what documents do we have that are known to contain the teachings and the testimonies of the apostles who had known Jesus firsthand? Okay, so that was the first thing. Second, which documents are consistent with with each other on the beliefs that they, um, that they teach and are consistent with the beliefs that those apostles handed down to us. So that was the second thing. And then third, which documents are commonly recognized and used as inspired scripture in all of the churches all over the known world? That was the third thing. Because, you see, churches all over had the experience that, that there were certain documents that they read, religious documents which were interesting and were encouraging to their faith. You know, the, um, uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name, never mind. Uh, the Billy Graham type writings of the day, let's say. The Max Lucado documents of the day. You know, good, in, good inspiring stuff. But, but there were those documents, but then there were, there were other documents 
which when they read them, they sensed that God was speaking, that they met with God as they read these documents, that they were being transformed by God just like they were when they read the Old Testament scriptures. And and these groups of believers were all over the place from Europe to Asia and Africa, and they were all having the same experience, and they were in substantial agreement that these documents were inspired by God just like the Old Testament scriptures were. And so in the last decade of the fourth century, the church agreed on the New Testament canon that we have today. Which leads to the third question. Can we trust this canon? Can we trust this Bible? I mean, in some ways, it's such a human book. It was written by a diverse group of writers in, in the common language and idioms of the day. I mean, some of them, their grammar isn't even that good. If you ever get to learn Greek or Hebrew, that's one of the things you'll get to discover. Um, and, and it was collected by, by fallible humans too, re religious leaders of, of long ago, people who by modern standards we might consider ignorant and unenlightened and, and superstitious, all of which of course betrays our own modern arrogance and bias, as if we're the first ones to be smart, as if having more knowledge is the same thing as having more wisdom, and as if a people 100 years from now aren't going to look back at us and see how unenlightened we, we are. So, on the one hand, the Bible is, is so human. But on the other hand, if, if God inspired the Bible, if, if by an amazing miracle, God actually chose to, to condescend, to stoop, to, to reveal himself through these human writings, if, if God chose to speak to us in our own words, words which we could relate to and, and could understand, then, if that's the case, then we would have reason to put trust in this book, and not only to trust it, but to honor it and to love it. And that idea that the Bible's inspired is, is exactly what the Bible claims for itself. In, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that's the, the verse we read earlier, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. And so it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, Paul's talking about the Old Testament here. That's the only Bible they had at that time. But later, Peter calls Paul's letters scripture too. He says in 2, Timothy 3.16, or 2 Peter 3.16, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, right? <laughs> Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Did you hear that? Paul puts, or Peter puts Paul's letters on the same par as the other scriptures. Earlier in the same letter in 2 Peter 1.20, Peter claims, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there, Peter clearly affirms that the prophets, at least, that's what he's focusing on there, were inspired by God to the extent that, that what they said wasn't their own interpretation, but it was God's voice and God's word. Now, taking this further, Scripture claims that this inspiration is of such a quality that the words of Scripture are perfect. Let's just listen to a couple verses from the Old Testament here. Psalm 12, 6. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Proverbs 35, every word of God is flawless. 
And Jesus himself seems to have held this view. Not only in several instances did he appeal to a single word of scripture to defend his point, but in Matthew 5.18, he told his disciples, for I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus had a high view of even the details of of scripture, talking specifically about the law in this case. And so what it comes down to is this. Can we trust what scripture says about itself? Or, or is that just a circular argument? I mean, to say scripture says it's perfect and scripture is perfect, therefore scripture is perfect. That sounds pretty circular to me, doesn't it? But what we have to recognize here is this. For starters, we, we can begin by taking the Bible just as a historical document like any other document. And, and this document introduces us to a historical figure called Jesus. And, and despite what movies like Da Vinci Code would like us to think, and it's totally a, a fictitious movie and novel, by the way, there are good historical scientific reasons to discount some of the other gospels out there like the gospel of thomas and to trust the four gospels we have in the new testament as accurate records of this historical figure jesus the records that the apostles who actually knew jesus best wanted us to have and this jesus and and his followers his apostles tell us that the old testament is inspired by God. That's how they view it. That, that um, they, they view the Old Testament as, as scripture so that what it says, God says, right down it to its details. And then these same apostles speak of Jesus' word and they speak of one another's writings in the same way, that these words are inspired by God too. And, and so the bottom line is, if we can trust the apostles, the only record the only trustworthy record we have of the apostles, if we can trust Jesus at all, then we can trust what they say about this book. If we can't trust what they say about this book, we can't trust anything else they say either. So if we can trust them, then we can trust what they say and what this book says and that is that it's God's inspired and perfect revelation of himself to us. Now, a few cautions here. The, the word that most evangelicals like to use to, to talk about how the Bible is perfect is the word inerrant, which means without error. And not all evangelicals like this word, and, and there are some good reasons for this. Let me, let me, so let me give you three cautions. First, Nobody claims that the Bible that you have in your hand right now is inerrant. Rather, it's an English translation of a Greek or of a number of Greek and Hebrew documents, and, and that, that that Greek and Hebrew um, document is um, a compilation and a harmonization of literally thousands of Greek and Hebrew documents. Mo most of them are in better condition than this one here, thankfully. But these documents, nevertheless, are ancient handwritten copies of copies of copies of other documents. And, and so there's, there's room for human error here, though thankfully we have every reason to believe that the Bible that we have today is a really good representation of what was in the originals. 
But what we, when we say that the Bible is inerrant, what we're saying is not that this Bible is inerrant, but that the original documents that Moses or that Paul or that whoever wrote, which we don't have anymore, were inerrant. So that's the first caution. The second caution is that the Bible isn't inerrant according to 21st century standards of reporting or scholarship. It's inerrant, rather, according to the standards of the people who originally wrote it to communicate to their contemporaries. And, and these were people who, who were more used to paraphrasing and, and using artistic license and storytelling to get their point across compared to the way journalists or academicians write today. So that's the second caution. The third caution is that the Bible doesn't inherently tell us everything we want to know about everything. It, it doesn't tell us much about astrophysics or algebra or weightlifting or home decorating or a whole bunch of other things. And, and so if we go hunting for verses to make ourselves the authority on these sorts of things, we're probably going to wind up missing the point of the Bible. And, and so for these reasons and several others, some Christians prefer the word infallible to describe the way in which the Bible is perfect. They say, let's not get caught up in, in debating the minutia of, of factual details. Let's stick to the main point, and that is that the Bible is completely trustworthy, that it doesn't fail, that, that it may fail us to tell us everything we want to know, but it doesn't fail to communicate exactly what God wants to say to us. So you'll have to decide, inerrant or infallible. But a few other key words in, in closing here that Christians use when they talk about the Bible. Trustworthiness, authority, clarity, and sufficiency. Trustworthiness, we can trust the Bible completely. We can trust every word of it. Authority. Because we can trust it, because it's God's revelation, we should honor and submit to its authority. Because it's, it's our, our first and final authority when it comes to what we believe and to how we live. Clarity. The Bible is clear enough for us to understand what we need to know, what God wants us to know. And finally, sufficiency. It's sufficient to tell us what we need to know about God to receive God's salvation to have a relationship with God, to live a life that pleases God. There's no other place that we need to go for these things. It's all in this book. The Bible is sufficient. Okay, so here's the challenge. A seminary student once went into his Bible professor's office to talk with him, and, and his professor was poring over his copy of the Greek New Testament. And, and the student quipped, haven't you mastered that thing yet? And the professor shot back, no, it hasn't mastered me yet. How do you treat the Bible? Is it something for you to master, to, to understand, to dissect? Or do you submit yourself to it, to let it master, to let it shed light, to let it dissect you and your life? What part of the Bible do you find it hardest to accept? Are there verses, are there, there teachings that you write off as too radical or too out of date for today's world? Maybe it's where Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek or to, to lend your stuff without expecting to get it back. 
Maybe it's where the Bible speaks about sexuality as, as being a, a committed relationship between one man and one woman for life. Do you doubt that that's really God's word to us? Well, if you can't trust the Bible at those points, if, if you think that you know better than the Bible does, then what makes you think you can trust the Bible at any other point? So the challenge is to wrestle with whether the Bible really has authority in your life. Are you trying to sit in judgment over it? Are you trying to master it to make it fit your ideas? Or are you submitting yourself to letting it master you? Let's pray. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired men and women long ago to be able to speak and write in such a way as that we would hear your word just as you wanted us to hear it. For some of us, um, maybe what we heard today was reaffirming for the others of us, maybe it raised questions or new insights. But I pray that we would grapple with this book, that we would settle in our own minds whether we can trust it, whether we can trust all of it, whether we can look to it for authority for the choices we make, the way we live our lives, for the things we believe. And God, I pray through that process that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, you'd open our eyes to know you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.